And welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I'm joined by the whole crew on this fine day. Up in one corner, I have Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, I'm proud to say that Providence today is aping Austin because it's a billion degrees and we're all melting. I can't believe you're wearing a tank top. I mean, what's going on here? We went from central heating to central AC overnight in the Northeast. I don't know why. That said, Alex, you are wearing a tank top. 365 days a year. So it could be any weather outside. And I would be like, yeah, probably makes sense. I've actually cut back on the tank topping because my, and uh, this is not a a gender-based diss, but my spouse and mother-in-law are both pretty anti-men wearing tank tops. Oh, And so I do collect little bits of static and feedback about that on the regular. So Okay, always welcome here. Thank you. And speaking of people who are always welcome here, that voice is Natasha Moscarinas. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm in Jersey. I landed like two hours ago. I've already like had three meals and coffee from my favorite (laughs) local coffee shop. So I'm right at home. And uh, Natasha, why are you back on the East Coast? This is pertinent to our friends who are listening. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I think we're going to meet a ton of you pretty soon, but TechCrunch is hosting a few mixers. We have TechCrunch early stage in Boston on April 20th, which is kind of wild considering the date and Boston. I feel like it's going to be a lit time if you pick up what I'm putting down. I literally just realized that we're going to be in Boston on 420, a state where I'm just going to say this out loud. Cannabis is legal on a recreational basis. It's going to be a lot. So it's going to be fun. We're going to talk about early stage building, but that's why I'm here. And some reunions are en route. So you'll hear that on equity next week. Yeah. I think we're going to be taping uh, live from the kind of show floor, if you will. So there'll be some, hopefully some cameos from folks and it'll be a good time. All right. So what are we talking about this week? We have, as always, an absolutely packed show. We're going to kick off with an up update on FTX and Twitter, which is apparently now called X. Then there's stuff about Reach Capital and Clear Street. On the theme front, we're going to talk about how unicorns are now once again rare. We're going to take a look at global AI regulation, try to figure out where things are, the state of the art, if you will. And then we'll riff on to raise or not to raise an opportunity fund, the hottest current changing narrative in the land of venture capital. I'm hype. I am so hype for today. And I'm even more hype because we're starting the show off today with, I think, a new set segment, Alex. We're, we're calling it the Oh Really segment, which I think needs to be a new standing part of our show. What's going on that's making you say, huh? Oh, really? Oh, really? Well, first of all, <laughs> we got more FTX docs. And if you recall, FTX was a, well, it was in theory, a cryptocurrency exchange that was separate from a hedge fund. And then it turned out to actually be one small nerd cabal who were just messing around with lots of money and doing silly things. And Marianne, we got more information, including that they would occasionally over at Alameda, the sister company, occasionally misplace $50 million in assets that they'd later find. I'm just going to take that that's not normal in fintech. Uh, no. I mean, or if it is, we don't know all about it. It just offends me greatly to imagine these people joking about losing $50 million here and there. Like it's nothing. I mean, literally makes my stomach turn. Why? Why? I mean, there's so many people out there who even... $1,000 is so much money and can make a big difference to their lives and the lives of their families. And these people are so arrogant and so entitled Mm. that they have the nerve to joke about this. Like, I mean, 
you know how I get when I get enraged. I'm getting enraged just thinking about it. I'm really getting pissed off. <laughs> it's interesting because crypto had a reputation problem. It definitely has one through and around the FTX situation, but it's still based on what I'm seeing at, you know, NFT NYC still has a sort of reputation that it doesn't care to necessarily shed, which is hype, glam, all the likes, exclusivity. And so I think that's what I have left after I hear that stat, Alex, is it definitely is absurd. But I also think that's not necessarily creating a chilling effect and making crypto try and be more humble at large. So Jackie Melanick from the TechCrunch team is at NFT NYC this week. And I was talking to her before she went about kind of what's going on, what's the vibe, you know, trying to get my my finger on the pulse of this part of the crypto world. And she was talking about how like last year there were like yacht parties and stuff. And I said, you know what we should do is we should have gotten like a like a rowboat and put like a little TechCrunch sign on it and then called it like the TechCrunch NFT NYC yacht party and have like <laughs> one six pack of like warm beer and just invite like two friends on. But Sadly, we didn't have time to pull that off. I do. I, I think it'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> the FTX thing, essentially a continuation, if you will, of what we already knew, just somehow worse than we expected. I don't know where this is going to go, Marianne, but my, my, my read here is that at a minimum, the exchange subgenre of crypto, which is a subgenre of fintech, probably won't be raising a lot of money in the near future. Sadly, it does have ripple effects in the whole industry, for sure. Yeah, it's all pretty bad. Let's go from FTX to X. Hey! What's happening? <laughs> Drop the FT and all the British journalists get mad. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> so Elon Musk, again, I had to do a little bit of historical digging here. So back in the 90s, there was a thing called X.com, which was a bank that Musk was part of. Then they merged with something else. And then that became PayPal, as far as I can tell. Musk bought the X.com domain name back in 2017. And he now wants to turn, as far as I understand it, again, it's, it's Musk. So it's always kind of reading between the tweets. Yeah. He wants to turn Twitter into X.com and have it be something akin to a super app. And we're all familiar with super apps. WeChat in China is a kind of the canonical example. Um, I think Grab to some degree is uh, it's a similar idea. Ba basically, Marianne, it's all the stuff in one bucket. And uh, to me, Twitter is a terrible place to start to build this. And I, I don't understand it. And it feels a bit like a flail. A total flail. I mean, considering that he pretty much admitted that he only bought Twitter because he felt like he was going to be forced to. So now he's just like, okay, what am I going to do with it? And I had no idea about X.com being the name of the bank that Elon had launched back in the late nineties. Uh, and that later became PayPal. Very interesting little fun tidbit there. I, I mean, I don't know. I just, Twitter is such a mess right now. Like I, it's not the same experience. I don't know what he's doing. I don't see how it can be successful. I feel like there's no real thought out strategy. Like everything's on a whim. Let's just do this. Let's just do that. And let's see how it lands. And so far, nothing is landing well. Nothing seems to be working. So I'm not sure why he thinks this big grand plan is going to be successful. I mean, to take kind of, a, I'm not going to say a supportive or the counter argument here, yeah, please. but like one, one step to one side, you know, okay, Twitter has this massive reach and there is probably a huge temptation of using the network as a gateway into helping people discover other habits. And so I don't necessarily think Twitter would be a bad place to start. And I'm all for experimental launches. I think it's the experimental launches with a lot of the restraints and constraints and free speech questions that I think hurts 
it. You know what? Flail. Look, look like you don't know what you're doing. But I think the more entrepreneurial way to do that might be to be open than to do that, but then like block Substack links. And I, I don't know. I think those two philosophies do not go together. How do you become the everything app if you don't have everything on the damn app? Mm, good point. It's a valid point. And I appreciate you bringing up the maybe experimentation is good. Let's give it a shot. And I'm totally here for that. But the problem that I have with it right now as a focus is quite a lot of Twitter doesn't work that well. Like Tweetin, which was an app that I used that kind of made an improved version of TweetDeck stopped working for me. TweetDeck itself is a mess on the web interface. And Twitter, I don't think, is having its best operational year we've ever seen in terms of like working. And then there's the unforced errors that you brought up, the link blocking and so forth. There's the whole brouhaha with state-funded media and so forth. And so to me, it's a bit like we have a car and the car's engine doesn't work that well and two of the tires are flat. And instead of trying to fix the car so it drives down the road, you attach pontoons on it because you want it to also be a amphibious vehicle. Like, what the f*** are you doing? <laughs> fix the tires first, yeah. then attach pontoons. Exactly. Like, po- I'm not saying no pontoons. I'm just saying later, you know? Yeah. Right. Take your time. Like, think it out. Well, I mean, he does have, like, what is it, $14 billion in debt payments that are tick, tick, ticking? <laughs> I don't know how much time he has. But I will say this. There's a unified lesson between these two, which is why I had them in the same bucket here of, oh, really? Which is that FTX, one of the problems it had was that one person was in charge and had kind of complete control. And founder-led companies can have outsized venture results. Facebook is kind of the canonical example thereof. But we also see, I think, in time, whenever one person has unlimited control for a long period of time, it kind of goes bad. And Twitter is another example of one person being the single player, if you will, at the middle of it. FTX is another one of those companies. And uh, Facebook became one of those companies, if you look at their metaverse spending in the last couple of years. So that's why I grouped them. Well said. But let's move on. And we're going to talk about two things I didn't think were going to come up, ed tech and new venture funds. And in <laughs> fact, this time they're together, Natasha. What's going on? I know ed tech needed this news, which is why I covered it. Reach Capital, which is you know one of the first venture capital firms that was ever founded to invest exclusively in ed tech, just closed its largest fund to date, a $215 million VC fund, and as well as kind of a sidecar fund for founders within its portfolio. And I mean, you know, I don't cover new funds often. I covered this one because closing your largest fund the year after the total capital that ed tech startups were able to raise from VCs was cut in half. It just feels like such a contrarian thing to be able to do. To me, like seeing that number, I don't know. It's kind of like, I'm not as excited about like if an ed tech company was able to like get to a valuation right now, because I don't know the whole story behind it. I feel like VC funds can't really lie about closing a fund. And so I'm kind of just like, damn, you really did that when we all saw what was happening to EdTech, which was a retreating spotlight. So, I mean, huge fan of the team, but I also just wanted to cover the fact that there's new money in the space because I'm sure people are paying attention to it. Yeah, I was intrigued. I mean, obviously EdTech saw a retreat after the pandemic and as more people started going you know, back to school and, and things like that. I have a couple of questions. Well, or in one note, one is you mentioned that They are looking toward Latin America. They're looking outside of the U.S. So I'm curious about that. If they just see more opportunity there than they do, not necessarily more than the U.S., but different opportunity in Latin than they do here. So I I found that really interesting. Another thing I'm curious about, what are some of their portfolio companies that have done well? And is that 
do they have a number of them? Is that how they were able to do this in this current environment? I certainly think so. I mean, one that I'm actually interviewing on TC Live soon is Class Dojo. That was valued at over $1 billion. OutSchool as well. Handshake, Replit. Replit has a kind of like a really big spotlight on it right now because of a recent AI partnership with Google. So I, I think they've checked the box in terms of ed tech companies that have, you know, are not so niche and, and are known by broader venture capitalists outside of specialist funds. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, in terms of the LATAM focus, we see this with every ed tech fund. I, I think every ed tech fund is looking internationally because adoption rates and opportunity can be so much bigger than the U.S. Like spending is higher in certain geographies. And so I don't know what about LATAM or, you know, if it's more than before, but it is one thing that they specifically called out, which is, you know, they invest in seed and series B in the U.S. and abroad with specific interest in LATAM. So I'm curious. We've been hearing LATAM more recently. And I wonder if it was all a decision that happened at the same time. <laughs> uh, I, I just still feel like there's a lot of opportunity there. So, and investors recognize that. Yeah. But I, I'm really glad you asked that question, Marianne, because it taught me via Natasha's answer that the number of ed tech companies that did raise a lot of money during the pandemic or were very active during that time period are not only still here, but are doing at least well enough that we have positive vibes from their external appearance. Yeah. So it sounds like that the ed tech funding boom wasn't wasted, really. I don't think so. I think beyond the jobs that were lost as a result of companies raising at high valuations and over hiring, like I think that was one of the biggest impacts. But in terms of like what furthered it, I think like people got clarity on what ed tech is and what it can do. And yet the fact that LPs are still willing to invest, I feel like I'm seeing a lot of like this like thesis from OwlVC, which is like an ed tech and company. And so ed tech is kind of becoming more horizontal than a vertical. So ed tech in fintech, ed tech and AI. And that to me like de-risks, I don't know, some of the ed tech history there around not knowing if it was a venture-backed opportunity. Well, I'm just glad that it ended up being one. Yeah. You know? I mean, EdTech was so left out on the, the outer fringes of venture for so long. It's kind of like an inverse fintech, if you will, in that way. And <laughs> then suddenly during the pandemic, it became an absolute darling. And in the piece about Reach Capital, I love the bit that was like, you don't hear about learning pods or Zoom school anymore. Yeah. And I was like, damn, that now feels like a blast from the past. Yeah. Right. right. One last note about this before we move on to Marianne's deal of the week. But the, the conversation in this about tourist money leaving being a positive. That stood out to me. That stood out to Teresa. She pulled that out into our notes. The decline in overall capital is never welcome. But if stupid capital is getting out, I presume EdTech's still going to have enough money to keep pursuing its goals. Yeah, I think that could go for a lot of different sectors, really, where or, or in geographies as well. You know, that in the during the boom times where a lot of tourist firms kind of came into something trying to to get in on the next big thing, but then maybe realized, okay, we don't really have the expertise for this, or maybe we should leave this to the people who have been doing it for a long time. So I think we're seeing that in a lot of different places right now. Seen it in crypto, seen it in ed tech, but one place where the capital is still flowing is, is fintech, fintech, shockingly enough. Yes. Marianne, you have, you have a hot story here. Tell us about it. Yeah, I was really surprised when I got the pitch for this story. I was I had to do a double take because it's been so long since <laughs> I've, I've been pitched a raise that was nine figures at a yeah. multi-billion dollar valuation. So I wrote about Clear Street. They raised $270 million dollars. At a $2 billion valuation. It was the second tranche of a Series B that they raised the first round of or the first tranche of last year. So a lot of money these days. And so a couple of years yeah. ago, this headline would have, you know, really been you'd hardly do a double take. But 
in this environment this week, it stood out in my opinion. So definitely talking about blast from the past. That's what this felt like. You're so right. And like, we wouldn't have noticed it or been as excited about it if it was two years ago. I feel like my reaction when I saw this story now was like, are we sure? Like, yeah. are they going to be regarding their valuation in like three minutes? Like, did anything come up during the call that you feel like they were defending their valuation to you or give? I, mean, I know they didn't share hard revenue as they wouldn't, but anything else that made you feel more confident around them getting that two billion? Well, it really, it was sort of like an extension. I think we talked about this during our prep call because they had raised last year at a $1.7 billion valuation. So that this was essentially flat, not a down round though, at least. Mm -hmm. They did not give me revenue figures, but are claiming they're seeing lots of growth in terms of their clients are up by 500% over the past year, daily transactional volume up by more than 300%. So they claim to be seeing a lot of growth and that that's what led to them being able to raise this extension at a flat valuation. So I think that fits into the the point about us being shocked at the valuation, because if this round had closed two years ago, we would have said, things are crazy. What can you do? And presumed that there wasn't that much substance behind the numbers. But now that they managed to keep a flat valuation at a multi-billion dollar price tag and raise two hundred and seven, not just nine figures, nine figures that almost starts with a three, you know? Wow. Yeah to me implies that there must be so much behind it. There's an, there's an ocean of progress to defend that. So look, it's not my job to come here and pat rich people on the head, but <laughs> I'll, I'll say it. Well done. Well, you're so right. Actually, like I take back a little bit of like the energy I entered this with because I'm like, VCs do not want to overpay for anything. And, and now they have an excuse not to. So to give money at all at a valuation at all, <laughs> what good job. Right. <laughs> Any late stage deal. Good job. It's, it's been a while. It's been a while <laughs> since I've covered a raise like this. But one last thing to say before we move on, it is an infrastructure company. They're saying that they're building the modern infrastructure for capital markets. Infrastructure has remained quite resilient even throughout this downturn. We've said it before. And I'll say it again. It, it seems to be one area within fintech that continues to do well. What? What is infrastructure for the capital markets? Because I don't feel like that could be. Don't ask me to explain that right now, Alex. We don't have a lot of time. No, no, I, no, I don't want you to because one, it's the single most boring thing I've ever heard a human utter out loud, but also because it can mean literally anything. It's like, it's like, I don't know, like. It's like they should be clearer. It should be clearer. <laughs> be specific, you know, like, come on. All right. Now that Marianne's going to get uh, an email for that one, oh, no. let's <laughs> move on and talk about other unicorns and how they're actually becoming rare again. So going back in time, there was a fascinating piece on TechCrunch.com way back in the day about how there were a new era of billion dollar startups that were coming along and they were called unicorns because they were both rare and they were special. And then during the kind of last venture boom, they became common and boring and then everything changed again. And now once again, they are rare and they are cool. So to put this in perspective, Marianne, we were seeing dozens of unicorns put together. It seemed like each month back in the day. In fact, I think we saw, uh, I think one year there was like 163 that were made or something like that, just crazy high numbers. And then in Q1 of this year, there were either 18 or 13, depending on uh, which data source you prefer. Ouch. So the number has come down enormously. And so they actually, it seems to mean something again now. And that's why the story about Clear Street hit me so well. Yeah. I mean, I was stunned by the, the numbers. First quarter of 2023 saw new unicorns being created at a pace only fractionally better than the average quarterly rate in 2016. I mean, 
wow, like we've been talking about, oh, this is pre-pandemic numbers, pre, you know, but we're talking like 2019, early 2020, but my God, we're comparing things now to 2016. It freaked me out a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to clarify in the third and fourth quarter of 2021, each quarter saw 163 new unicorns, more than one per day during the period. Now we're down to nearly one a week. So it was 163 per quarter. Yes. Oh my gosh. Wow. So, that's even worse. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's there's over a thousand now and we've gone back to essentially pre-boom unicorn creation. And frankly, m- my vibe is this. A lot of startups were awarded or given a billion dollar plus valuation during the boom. But it turns out those were not real unicorns because there's no way they can defend it over a longer time horizon. So they never really were. They were just yeah. kind of LARPing as unicorns. Yeah. I mean, the thought of the this notion of all these companies that were so proud of like being called unicorns and then all of a sudden we're like, ooh, no longer. I mean, it's just must be so humbling, right? I mean, I don't know. Like, it's just... I am curious and I would love to know of all the unicorns that were born over the past few years, how many actually really do still exist. And I know that would be very difficult to to find out, but it's probably a fraction, right? Yeah, I feel like they're they're very much zombies in a way because they have capital and they exist. I agree with the fact that unicorns are rare now. I think they were rare last year too. What your story made me realize that's new is that they're also real. Like they're also becoming realer over time. That's like what has changed now because we're not just saying, oh, look, it's someone who announced their funding round six months later and maybe they actually did close in 2021 and they're fine. Like I I feel like that, I don't know. I was obsessed with the story you worked on that was the group of potential unicorn IPOs because I feel like that gave me something to like believe again, not to be dramatic. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Super interesting. Not to brag, but that story was a surprise hit over on TechCrunch Plus. Hell yeah. I wrote it and then I kind of put it away and then we put it out anyways and then it did well. And I was like, look at me, still got it. (laughs) Of course you do. (laughs) So certainly while a great number of unicorns turns out we're just overvalued and we'll struggle to go into those valuations, there are a lot of really big, awesome, cool companies that I'm excited to see their their S1s from. I'm going to be quick here, but we know that Turo has filed and updated its filing. We know Instacart and Reddit have filed privately. Clavio is now on the list. Remote hired a new CFO. Rippling and Gusto are both worth around $10 billion and got through the SVB crisis in good stead. So that's on the list. I'm just going to say Databricks three times. So that way, uh, Ali Godsey has to come on the show. Databricks, Databricks. And then we also have Velocity Global, eToro, Acorns, they spacked and then didn't spack. Remember that? Dr. Lib, Blah Blah Car, Rappi outside the US. It's a big list of cool companies that I want to see come out. And there's so much to talk about there. So I know it's not yet, guys, but I know that it is not never. And so that means it's coming. It's a hell yeah. Are you kidding? Those are all companies I'm actually excited about. They're all so cool. I think also, just like you said, everything has a new meaning right now. Like we we take it all more seriously, Uh, going public, unicorn, like now these these phrases, these words mean so much more than they did two to three years ago. So if you're a company who has been minted a, a unicorn or is going public, then, you know, Wow. Kudos to you because it means a whole lot more these days than it did a couple of years back. Let's move on and talk about a unicorn stability AI that doesn't really have much of a business model, but it does allow us to segue into all things artificial intelligence. And Natasha, we haven't had a chance to yet, but Cerebral Valley, is it real? Yes. 
Cerebral Valley, it's real. I've been there. You feel the energy for sure. I mean, SF, we can talk about an SF is back episode on Wednesday, maybe, or like after hours. But I was able to listen to Stability AI at a recent conference called Cerebral AI. It was put on by Eric Newcomer and Bali. And their CEO, Ahmad, said something along the lines of, you know, we are IPOing soon. The market needs this. And then Eric said, like, how soon? Like five years? And then he was like, sooner. And then Eric was like, three years? And he was like, sooner. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Of course, the CEO then was just like, you can't just IPO. You need to have great revenue margins distribution. And then when an audience member asked about the revenue plan and the clear idea of monetization, Ahmad kind of shook that off. And so, you know, AI is here. Cerebral Valley is exciting. I think there's a healthy skepticism in the room, though, from from everyone, which is actually super refreshing because it makes conversations about regulation or even like hype valuations not feel out of place. Tell me more about the skepticism part, because I know what I'm reading and what I'm hearing, but I'm curious in that room, what skepticism sounded like? Yeah. So I feel like there's one big question that every early stage startup is getting right now. Why would open AI and stability AI not eat you up? These are the two biggest players in the world. Yeah. In the AI space right now and VCs, it's too early for them to know who's going to stand out. And so I was talking to a number of founders who said it's actually hard to fundraise right now. It's easy to hire. People want to work for the buzzy new AI company, especially coming out of YC, but it's hard to fundraise because VCs just want to take their time. They want to take the wait and see approach, which is kind of you know, counter narrative to how VC should work, but I get it. And I, I think there's a little bit of like, I tweeted this, but I think there's a little bit of burn from crypto still on investing yeah. early and not knowing who a leader will be. So I feel like that's one big skepticism. Mm-hmm. And then the other big skepticism is like, it has so many clear negative impacts that if we look back to last month and that letter that keeps coming up of people asking innovation to stop for six months, I think that's like kind of the, been the biggest skepticism around AI, um, or at least a tool that's being used to sound like skepticism around what AI is right now. Those are my top two. Here's what you guys are seeing and hearing. You know, I'm looking at AI very cautiously as well, just as a reporter, just because I've been covering tech for a long time, over two decades. And I know that this chat GBT really opened up a lot of eyes and minds to the the potential of AI, which, you know, it's been around for years and years, but it's not like it's a new thing. Let's be clear. It's not new. It's just that chat GBT kind of showed, I guess, the power of what AI can do. And so there's all this clamoring to kind of, I guess, do what it's doing as well and just be this breakthrough. But I, I'm kind of with these VCs, like I would just be cautious. We, you know, there's still a lot to be learned, a, a lot to wonder or worry about the implications of the potential misinformation or errors, you know, things like that. So I, again, I approach this with a healthy dose of skepticism. It's fascinating technology, no doubt, but let's just proceed cautiously. All right. I'm going to put on my Moscarinus hat and I'm going to play the optimist here. Yes. What are you going to say? So yes, everything you guys said is very reasonable. This is why we're seeing regulation in India uh, or discussions of regulation in India, major regulatory action in Italy and other places around the world. That said, Marianne is dead on that what we're talking about is not brand new. Large language models were not invented 38 days ago, but they did just have their iPhone moment. And before the iPhone came out, there were things like the Compaq iPack, which you forgot about because it sucked. And there were operating systems for mobile phones, which you forgot about because they sucked. And now we have much better things and the world has moved along. So newness isn't really, I think, what matters. It's quality. Mm. And this is why in the Bessemer 
2023 State of the Cloud report that I was reading this morning, they had a lot about AI and they had a perspective that I thought was interesting because you might think, given what we've heard from everybody about how like, well, you know, there's some there's some issues here. Bessemer is like speed to execution is going to be your edge here. Get busy with it. Huh. And that was very interesting to me. So I am... I would say generally optimistic about about this stuff. And I think it's nice to be on the non-negative side for once. <laughs> we love it. it. Speed to execution, meaning like, does it literally mean that? Like, I'm surprised kind of that they're saying that, but I'm not. The, the there's time. nuance to it. Like, read the report. They, they talk about how to, you should have like AI hackathons and figure out where it fits into your product. But and they have some it. rubrics for that. But they're like, don't wait a year and then play with it. Like, this is happening now. Yeah. And I think because it had an iPhone-ish moment of the promise and the product finally uniting in the hand of a consumer, mm-hmm. that is why it's different. Um, Before we move on, great way to put Alex. I just want to say I agree with you. I think that's that's the key here is that the quality of how OpenAI did this is what has made this so exceptional. But still, we'll see how things go. Yeah. And I, I have beef too with like how artists in China's video game market are being squeezed out by AI tooling. And like there's externalities and there's issues, but a bit like electricity, once you plug something in, you're not going back to candles. This is going to be mainstream one day. Yeah, for sure. The question is just, is that 2024 or 2044? And we'll, we'll see. Self-driving cars or AI everywhere first. What'll happen? You'll find out here on Equity. Let's wrap up. I know we only have a couple of seconds here. Opportunity funds. We scooped some news over on uh, TechCrunch about Lux raising a large fund and kind of a, a late stage vehicle if, as well, if I recall. We're seeing VCs go a little bit less multi-stage as time goes along, it feels like, but there are some kind of countervailing factors. And so I'm curious what you guys are hearing from, from venture land and if there's kind of that consensus point on if VCs should still raise an early and a late stage fund or just stick to what they're best at. Interesting. I mean, I actually had a... So yeah, I mean, the Lux example was interesting. They finally confirmed the news we reported. Shout out Becca from our team. They raised a over $1 billion fund and they are not doing that opportunity fund, which is, you know, a dedicated late stage entity. Kind of the opposite of what NEA told me in January of this year, which for the first time they uh, broke out into two different funds. So they always had one fund for early to growth. And then based on LP requests, they ended up breaking both into $3 billion funds. And so unless life has changed since January, which it has, so maybe that's not what NEA is going to do for its next set a few years from now. I feel like we have like still people trying to figure it out. I don't know. There's probably just like, it comes down to like your philosophy and everyone has a different bet, which seems healthy. I'm glad everyone's not following each other right now. Right. I mean, Kosla, Canon, both raised opportunity funds this year. So it's not, not everybody, but certainly there does appear to be a retreat in late stage investing. I, I did find it interesting and notable that a firm would actually just not raise an opportunity fund at at all when it had in the past. I know that in LATAM, for example, Kazakh raised, when they raised their nearly $1 billion fund last week or announced it, almost half of it was opportunity money. Wow. So wow. that's interesting too, to me, where we're seeing a retreat by some firms here and then like still pumping it the late stage companies right. there. Yeah. I, just to close this off really quick, Canaan, when they raised 850 million across a couple of funds, their general partner, Maha Ibrahim, who I've spoken to a number of times, told Connie that she sees great opportunity in having money set aside for late stage right now because other investors don't. So whenever we point out a trend 
There's always going to be people who are going the opposite way just because that might be the smart move. All right. Well, we are parsing through a bucket of Q1 data right now, looking at the early, middle, and late stages. So more to come here as we figure out what's going on here in the U.S., around the world, by sector, by geography, and by demographic. Lots to talk about. Woo! Um, I think that's our show, but we should end with my new favorite part, which is our shout-out corner. Alex, you have a ton of fans that left us five-star reviews on Apple Pods this week, so let's give them some shout-outs. I'm going to be really brief with all these. We have Stefan, aka at StefanTMD on Twitter. He's from Wondergraft, the back end for front end framework. I don't know what that means, but I love it. We also have Martha, the founder over at The Key PR. She's great. Savram, Nicole Barbarossa, Kelly Swell, Tucker Cohen from Smooth, an app to help couples split their expenses. Be smooth. Don't pay for things. And then finally, cats, 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 cats. Thank you all for your reviews. You make us look good. Thank you all. Yay. Everyone else, I mean, keep doing that. And also don't forget to vote for our friends on Found and Chain Reaction over at the Webbies. We'll add a link to the show notes. And yeah, I appreciate Marianne, Alex, Teresa, Andrew, everyone that helps. I appreciate all of you. Yeah. And uh, for those of you who are going to early stage next week, our discount code no longer works. So hope you used it. Well, well it did. And uh, <laughs> we'll see you there. If you see two nerds podcasting in the corner, that's because we're doing that. All right. Have a good weekend. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Equity Fridays are hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporters, Natasha Mascarenas and Mary Ann Azevedo. We're produced by Teresa Loconsola with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickabet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back next week.